Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by voiceover colossus Ken Krause, by our behind-the-scenes tech meister Marshall Brown, and by our artist-activist of the show, improviser, actor, songwriter, Brian Lohman. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hooksprung and Rick and Henny Newman. And to our supportive snappers, Ellen Athens, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Kathy White, Dominique Jowers and John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook. These supporters help keep Snap Sessions snapping. Join the Snap Sessions family. Snap Sessions Environmental Hall of Shame. Exxon knew about climate change back in the late 1970s, but they just buggered us harder. The story you are about to hear is true. No names have been changed to protect any weasels, liars, or corporate criminals. Climate change has been happening since the beginning of Mother Earth. But human-induced climate change has been around since the onset of industrialization and the first burning of coal in Britain to turn the cranks on steam engines. For years, Exxon, Mobil, Shell, BP, and other companies have told us they are not part of the problem. But how long have they known about climate change? Has it been hidden from us? Who is to blame? Clearly there's going to be an impact. So I'm not, not disputing that increasing CO2 emissions in the atmosphere is going to have an impact. It'll have a warming impact. The, the, how large it is is what is very hard for anyone to predict. And depending on how large it is, then projects how dire the consequences are. This is all my fault. That was Rex Tillerson former Exxon CEO and former Trump administration Secretary of State. If you are wondering if he was bullshitting, he most certainly was. Snap Sessions today asks if we have been lied to about climate change and if some folks have known it existed for a long period of time. It's time for another episode of The Environmental Hall of Shame. The Earth's climate has been changing since the beginning and has gone through numerous big transformations well before the annoying species Homo sapiens ever existed. Why are human beings so stupid, ignorant, and pathetic? Temperatures rose and fell wildly during various times in the Paleozoic and Mesozoic eras, and that had nothing to do with us. We weren't even around yet. 
Yet human-caused or anthropogenic climate change was recognized early on by humanity. Theophrastus, the student of Aristotle in the 4th century BC, noticed that the draining of swamps made particular areas more susceptible to freezing and that clearing of forests made land warmer by exposing it to more sunlight. Well, duh! In the 11th century, the Chinese scholar Shen Kuo noticed ancient petrified bamboo forests in the arid northern region of Yanzhou, far from wetter areas of China, where bamboos typically grew. The great German scientist Alexander von Humboldt listed three ways in which the human species was affecting the climate by the 1830s. Deforestation, ruthless irrigation, and great masses of steam, smoke, and gas produced in industrial areas. In 1899, scientist Thomas Schrouder Chamberlain sort of codified these observations in a book, an attempt to frame a working hypothesis of the causes of glacial periods on an atmospheric basis. He developed the theory that climate changes could result from changes in the concentration of atmospheric carbon dioxide. By the late 1950s, more and more scientists were arguing that CO2 emissions could be a big problem. And in 1960, scientist Charles David Keeling demonstrated forcefully that the level of CO2 in the atmosphere was rising consistently with his famous Keeling curve. But there had not been rigorous testing of Keeling's theories until the Exxon Corporation began secretly researching these notions in the late 1970s. Please don't tell anyone. In the late 1970s, oil companies like Exxon and Shell carried out confidential internal assessments of the carbon dioxide released by fossil fuels and forecast the planetary consequences of these emissions. In 1982, for example, Exxon predicted that by about 2060, CO2 levels would reach around 560 parts per million, double the pre-industrial level, and that this would push the planet's average temperature up by about 2 degrees Celsius over then-current levels, and even more compared to pre-industrial levels. That doesn't look good. This is information they kept secret from the public. The Reagan administration joined in this denial in the early 1980s. That we have only leased out and begun to explore 2% of our outer continental shelf for oil, there are vast supplies yet to be found. In fact, back then, Exxon had a public reputation as a pioneer in climate change research. How do we know the good guys from the bad guys? In July 1977, a senior scientist of Exxon, Charles Black, reported to the company's executives that there was a general scientific agreement at that time that the burning of fossil fuels was the most likely manner in which mankind was influencing global climate change. Agreed. From 1979 to 1982, Exxon conducted a research program of climate change and climate modeling, including a research project of equipping their largest supertanker, SO Atlantic, as a laboratory with sensors to measure the absorption of carbon dioxide by the oceans. It was July 1977 when Exxon's leaders received this blunt assessment, well before most of the world had heard of the looming climate crisis. Exxon's James Black seemed to be an honest scientist. In the first place, there is general scientific agreement that the most likely manner in which mankind is influencing the global climate is through carbon dioxide release from the burning of fossil fuels, 
Black told Exxon's management committee, according to a written version he recorded later. A year later, Black, a top technical expert in Exxon's research and engineering division, took an updated version of his presentation to a broader audience. He warned Exxon scientists and managers that independent researchers estimated a doubling of the carbon dioxide, or CO2, concentration in the atmosphere would increase average global temperatures by 2 to 3 degrees Celsius, or 4 to 5 degrees Fahrenheit, and as much as 10 degrees Celsius, or 18 degrees Fahrenheit, at the poles. Is it hot enough for ye? Rainfall might get heavier in some regions, and other places might turn to desert. Hot as hell in here. Yeah, man, but it's a dry heat. Let's listen to Climate Town's Raleigh Williams put things into perspective. In 1979, ExxonMobil was doing their own climate change report. But it wasn't a, oh, is climate change a thing report? It was an, oh no, I think they might be on to us report. You see, ExxonMobil had known about climate change since 1957. Yeah, they used to be called Humble Oil, ironic, and they did the research in 57 and found out that, yeah, CO2 in the atmosphere could really f*** things up. And then for the next 20 years, Exxon's top science advisors continually reminded them about the realities of the greenhouse effect, including a very special board meeting in July of 1977 when Dr. James Black explicitly warned Exxon executives about the impending danger of climate change. You know, that thing they found out about in 1957. 22 years later, they are now Exxon and they are trying to figure out how they can tamp down this information. You see, Exxon was worried that the Charney report might lead to some laws changing which could negatively impact their business model. So a bunch of Exxon executives got into a room together and the conversation might have gone a little something like this. Oh no, no we got it. What are we going to do? Pretend it's not even happening? <laughs> <laughs> In 1981, Exxon shifted its research to climate modeling, noting that the concentration of greenhouse gases could be catastrophic and that a significant reduction in fossil fuel consumption would be necessary to curtail future climate change. But by 1981, they had an ally in the White House, Ronald Reagan. Meanwhile, back at our ranch... Reagan took down Jimmy Carter's White House solar panels in his first week in the White House. Raleigh Williams explains further. And then 1980 rolled around and Ronald Reagan got elected president. And his first order of business was to roll back environmental regulations and hire a fossil fuel friendly EPA administrator. I put a freeze on pending regulations and set up a task force under Vice President Bush to review regulations with an eye toward getting rid of as many as possible. I have decontrolled oil, which should result in more domestic production and less dependence on foreign oil. Toward the end of the 1980s, there was increasing evidence that kissing up to big oil by the Reagan administration was not stopping increasing temperatures. More from Climate Town's Rolly Williams. And then came the summer of 1988, and it was off the goddamn charts hot. Crops died. Droughts happened. Climate change real. Congress wants another hearing. Another one. So they got James Hansen back and he said, hey, you remember that climate change thing I was talking about? This is that thing. And it seemed like the newly elected president, George H.W. Bush was listening because he literally said this. 1988, in a sense, is the year that the earth spoke back. 
This summer, we've seen a lot of talk about the greenhouse effect. As the nations of the world grow, uh, they burn increasing amounts of fossil fuels, and that gives off carbon dioxide, which acts as a blanket, insulating the earth, and thus could contribute to an increase in temperatures in the atmosphere. But we must have a clear commitment to emissions reduction. I will appoint the finest, most qualified individuals in the land to serve in the Environmental Protection Agency. They will have my mandate, go after the polluters. And a room full of Exxon executives cried a collective, fuck. But just like the common cockroach, Exxon executives refused to die. Not only did they refuse to die, they got flagrant in their lying, their bullshitting, and their chicanery. Take it away, Raleigh. They started a fossil fuel special interest group called the Information Council for the Environment. Their whole goal was to spend millions of dollars advertising in newspapers and radio to promote bullshit arguments that they knew were fraudulent. And this is not just like a theory I have. ExxonMobil's internal memos clearly state they were trying to emphasize a scientific uncertainty that they knew didn't really exist. They spent millions of dollars discrediting real scientists who were doing real climate work, showing that, yeah, climate change is happening, and they were buying testimony from fake scientists that they paid to say that actually everything is totally fine. Exxon, Mobil, Shell, BP, and Fossil Fuels invented something called the advertorial. It's sort of like it sounds, a cross between an advertisement and an editorial. It's paid for by mega corporate money, and it pushes a line of bullshit meant to sound realistic. They appeared in the op-ed pages of the New York Times and other newspapers, and were part of what scholars then called the longest regular weekly use of media to influence public and elite opinion in contemporary America. By 1991, informed citizens for the environment, their front group of coal and utility companies, complained about weak evidence. Your Honor, I object! And why is that? Because it's devastating to my case! Overruled. Good call! Non-existent proof and inaccurate climate models which asserted that the physics was open to debate. Listen to some of their advertorial titles. Doomsday is cancelled. What on earth is a carbon footprint? Apocalypse, no. Unsettled science. Who told you the earth was warming? Chicken Little? (laughs) The point all along has been to reposition reality as theory, not fact. But fracks are stubborn, even if you spend huge amounts on advertorials. An even bigger problem is that they have spent enormous amounts on politicians, too. So who are the fish? I'm Joe Manchin. I approve this act. because I'll The biggest catch, according to Mr. Coy, is the conservative Democrat Senator Joe Manchin, who famously shot President Obama's cap-and-trade climate bill. And I'll take dead aim at the cap-and-trade bill. Yes, the Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who is head of the Senate's Energy and Natural Resources Committee and is the biggest recipient of fossil fuels lobbyists' handouts still. Greenpeace managed to rip the cover off Exxon's lobbying efforts recently when they tricked Exxon lobbyist Keith McCoy into revealing how they deal with Congress. Once again, Climate Town's Raleigh Williams body slams their chicanery. 
Keith McCoy spent the better part of an hour speed confessing, so there's a lot to unpack. But for me, there were three specific turbo confessions that I think were particularly important. My right out of the gates, if you ever find yourself using the term shadow group to describe your business associates, you're probably not the good guys. Did we join some of these shadow groups uh, to work against some of the early efforts? Yes, that's true. Did we aggressively fight against some of the science? Uh, yes. You know, we were looking out for our investments. We were looking out for our shareholders. In this context, a shadow group is when you or someone you know sets up a separate group that you then fund to promote fake or misleading scientific conclusions that support your preferred conclusion. Shadow groups are basically how people catfished each other before Facebook. And Keith McCoy just admitted that Exxon used shadow groups to trick people into thinking climate change was fake so they could keep making their insane profits. And that's especially Cruella DeVille style fucked when you consider the fact that Exxon has known climate change is real for over 40 years, as demonstrated from internal documentation going back to July of 1977. But wait, there's more. One of the ways legislators talk about dealing with climate change is implementing a carbon tax to make sure big polluters have to pay a tax for screwing up the environment forever. That doesn't seem fair. More of Exxon's Keith McCoy, courtesy of Britain's Channel 4 and Climate Town. Carbon tax isn't going to happen, but it gives us a talking point that we can say, well, what is Exxon Mobil for? Well, we're for a carbon tax. The senior director of federal policy admits on camera that they only support a carbon tax because they know it won't pass and they can use their fake support of it as a talking point. Oh my God, he admitted it. Actually, do we have a shaggy reference we can use here? She even got me on camera. They even got him on camera. Thank you, Shaggy. Anyway, a carbon tax is actually a very effective way to fight climate change. It's basically a pollution tax that says, let's charge companies a fee for every ton of carbon dioxide pollution they emit. Companies will be incentivized to reduce their own carbon emissions to reduce the fees they pay, and we can let the precious free market solve the problem. Countries like England and Sweden already have a carbon tax, and guess what? It actually works. So when a bunch of big oil companies like Exxon started promoting a carbon tax in recent years, it turned a lot of heads. Maybe these big oil companies aren't trying to delay climate change and are ready to help tackle the problem. A thing they explicitly state on their websites. But it turns out none of that's true. Apparently ExxonMobil just did the math and found out that in today's political climate, there's no way to get 60 senators, including 10 Republicans, to vote in favor of actual climate policy. But you don't have to take my word for it. Take it away, Senior Director of Federal Relations at ExxonMobil. It's going to take political courage, mm. political will, in order to get something done. And that doesn't exist in politics, it just doesn't. It's basically never gonna happen, right, is the yeah. calculation? No, it's not, it's not gonna, carbon tax isn't gonna happen. Pretty straightforward. Exxon has known about climate change since around 1957, when they were humble oil. Proved that CO2 was increasing in the atmosphere by the end of the 1970s and has been bullshitting, greenwashing, and fucking us up the rear end ever since. Ow! All along, they have made an enormous amount of money. And we and our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and their descendants are fucked for the next couple centuries. How about that for the title of an advertorial? I'm begging you, we can't let Exxon win. Okay, they were such dicks for so long, and they're still being dicks today. They're still trying to discredit climate scientists, so just let's stop. How about it? 
Exxon Mobil and Fossil Fuels. You have won the biggest crown in the entire Snap Sessions Environmental Hall of Shame. In fact, Exxon is an eco-war criminal of the first rank. And we haven't even included the Exxon Valdez. So, join Snap Sessions in inducting Exxon to the Snap Sessions Environmental Hall of Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. Hi, I'm here with Brian Lohman. Uh, Brian's a, a good old friend. We've worked together since the late 80s. Uh, Brian and I originally worked in a group called the Bootlicking Snarling Weasels. And um, we uh, were at the Edinburgh Festival in um, 1987, wasn't it, Brian? That's right. We've done dozens of improv shows together. We'll talk about that over the course of the interview. But I, I've been looking forward to interviewing you for a long time, Brian. So welcome to Snap Sessions. Glad to be here, Doug. Thank you. Brian's a dad, and uh, he's got two young whippersnappers down there in Los Angeles. So I just wanted to say hi to uh, Django and Alistair and to your lovely wife, Kathleen. Uh, well, they, you get a special hello back from them, too, Doug. Kathleen said, <laughs> don't just say hello, send my love. So we have to talk I later, like obviously. All right, good, good. Brian has uh, been a longtime improv guy. You grew up in San Francisco. Um, as I recall, uh, your dad was a teacher. Was your mom also a teacher? No, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. But once the kids were grown, she went back to San Francisco State and got her master's in creative writing and published about nine books of poetry over her lifetime. So she was a dedicated poet and, a, and an editor. She edited magazines, including the Friends Bulletin. I was raised by Quakers in San Francisco. If you can imagine a more lefty version of being in San Francisco than being a Quaker in the 60s, I'd love to know what it is. <laughs> That's perfect. You know, I know San Francisco uh, was a great comedy town. It was also an improv town. And here you are, young man Loman, growing up in San Francisco, and they had the committee which was a regular group at the boarding house. And I know you got involved with the committee as a teenager. Tell us about that. I got involved with members of the Pitchell Players because my high school English teacher, Mary Ediacides, was a, a Pitchell player. And she was able to offer improvisational theater as an English elective at George Washington High School. So I was getting high school credit for learning improv and then she started a group out of the class that performed in a church basement on our Arguello and Clement. So in my junior year, I was on stage performing improv for a bunch of my peers doing sketch, uh, kind of the traditional Second City version where you start with a scripted piece and then you do some improv and then you do another maybe scripted musical piece and then more improv. And then you take suggestions, go back, look at the suggestions and come back with more improv in the second half. So th I, that was the style I first learned. And then that group, which was called Natural Acts, turned into a group called San Francisco Times, which Mary, Chris Prey from the committee, and John Fromer uh, all performed in, along with me, Diane Amos, who's a stand-up and actor-performer in the Bay Area, and another woman named Lori Cox. So I was in this weird hybrid improv group where three of us were 17, 18, and three of us were in our mid-30s. 
And it was a, a great way to learn the history and the process and the tradition with people who were still young enough to be your pals and uh, hang out and have fun with. Yeah. And this is a, this is a long improv career. We're talking since you're um, I believe in your late thirties now, uh, just yeah. kidding, but uh, <laughs> I'm perpetually 39 like Jack Benny. There you go. But um, you were back there working with this group and this is talking about about ni- late 70s then. Yes, yeah, 76, 77, 78 is Natural X San Francisco Times. And we were working at the old spaghetti factory and the Savoy Tivoli in North Beach. But we also ca- San Francisco Times also came up to Mendo. The first time that I came up to Mendo was with that group. And we played someplace that was like near the old water tower downtown. I can't remember the name was that called the well yes, the well chance yeah mm-hmm. yeah now that you bring that up it's kind of an interesting thing i recall that place i saw kate wolf play there among other things so yeah now here you're from an improv town you're you're involved early and you went to san francisco state uh there around that time when you're first involved with the san francisco times and you're part uh, San Francisco State. You met other a uh, lot of other terrific improvisers. SF State's been kind of a spawning ground for a lot of great improv over time. Uh, tell us about uh, the groups you worked with then, and then how they eventually turned into Fault Line. I was very fortunate to go to San Francisco State when I did. I went immediately out of high school, and then because I was already performing in North Beach with San Francisco Times, I took. Uh, a triple gap year and left college and just did, you know, performing full time. But when I went back in 1979, I did summer stock and I was in the mousetrap playing opposite Annette Benning. So the quality of the drama students there, and that's a shining example, but there was so much talent in the theater department. And the next year I got cast in time of your life, the Soroyan play, the wonderful Soroyan play. And Greg Proops was in that cast. And so was Heidi Rollman, Reed Rollman's sister. And there was already a group called Fault Line performing in the dorms at Mary Ward Hall. And Greg was in the dorms. Heidi was in the dorms. Uh, they invited me to come in and, and guest and do some improv with them. And then they asked me to, to direct because I'd been doing improv professionally, you know, at those clubs I mentioned. So Fault Line started in the dorms at Mary Ward Hall. We were there, I think, every Thursday night for years. And it was a crazy talented group. Mike McShane came in and guested there. It was the first time Mike had done improvised Shakespeare was with us, which you've seen him do on Who's Line uh, with jaw dropping ability. The uh, next places that we started to play were weird gigs like Hulahan's Disco downtown. The disco scene was still happening and dying in 1980. And We'd go in as Fault Line and do quick improv and comedy sketches on the dance floor while the DJ took a break and they fed us hamburgers. That was our pay. I'm sure that went over well with uh, some of the group. I wanted to just put in that uh, Greg Proops and Mike McShane, who Brian just mentioned, were regulars fairly uh, often on uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway, both in Britain and in the United States. And so this was the core of Fault Line Group. You also mentioned Reed Kirk Rallman, and she's on KQED. Um, yeah, Sandy, Sandy Oldhouse or Sandy Oldhouse. Yeah, Sandy Oldhouse, uh, who's a regular on KQED for many years now. She was also one of the regulars. And who else was in the Fault Line Group? The, the group that 
really in, in, enjoyed the great success and popularity in 1985 and 1986 were the five people that you mentioned, and then Kathy Arcolio, and our musician was Jeff Nathanson. And last but not least, our technical improviser, Pat Conroy, who ran lights for every show from the dorms all the way through the gigs at Lips Bar and Grill on 9th and Howard in 85, 86. So Pat was our tech guy for six years. And that group stayed together and played for two years, Thursdays and Saturday nights to sold out crowds. It was an excellent group. Uh, at the, I remember uh, at the time, Tracy and I were heading over to uh, Britain, I think, for our, our first tour. I read, it was like the day before, I read a review by Gerald Knackman in the San Francisco Chronicle of Fault Line. And of course, I loved improv and was involved you know, with hit and run theater and so forth. But reading that particular Knackman review was um, it was one of the most positive newspaper reviews of an improv group I have ever read. And he was talking about uh, really an exceptional group. Faultline, you were part of something that was really special. Yeah, thank you for that, Doug. I, I still really treasure the memories of those shows and the ambition and foolhardy naivete that went right along with it. You know, the combination of those two things. We didn't know what we had. We had a nightclub with free rent where they just took the the bar money and we got the whole door. We could go in there and rehearse during the day when we wanted to. It was this fantastically gothic San Francisco cellar that had been Jack Dempsey's training gym. These just brick walls and strange little closets off to the side where we put our props and stuff. But we took it really seriously and we rehearsed rigorously. We read Shakespeare out loud for the improvised Shakespeare sections. We crafted holiday shows that were specific for Thanksgiving, St. Patrick's Day, New Year's. We wanted to generate lots of new material. And it was a great opportunity to explore rap as a bunch of um, white suburban kids who had no business doing rap. But hey, if the Beastie Boys could do it, we figured we could. (laughs) And uh, do political satire. We had one sketch we wrote called Reagan at Bitburg, which is where, if you remember his his famous German World War II funeral appearance at the cemetery, which we... A lot of SS troops were buried there at Bitburg, and Reagan went along with Helmut Kohl for a visitation. This was uh, late 80s, yeah. Yeah, probably 80, 85, 86. And we turned it into an episode of Hogan's Heroes, where he was having an Alzheimer's flashback, where he thought he was... Colonel Hogan and Hogan's Heroes. And that's why he was there. <laughs> Great. Well, Faultline was, I felt bad. It was the group I never saw. I was going back and forth to England a lot at that time. What I did get to see was a couple of years later when we were, you had managed to get a lot of people. We were doing a fundraiser for the Weasels. Joshua was playing with you and it was yourself Greg Proops, uh, Mike McShane, and Reed improvising a song with Joshua about going to a, a circus event. I remember you managed to make a rhyme with "You have to be this tall to go to the uh, to go to the thing." Anyway, it was a fabulous four songs in a row, and that's when I saw the power of musical improv. Was uh, you were you guys working with Joshua? And I know you mentioned, uh, I said, Jeff Nathanson, you mentioned, who had been working with you before. So this was a whole new thing for me was to see uh, musical improv done this well. 
an extraordinary group. I felt sorry for Reed. Reed was is a great improviser, but he had to follow, I think, you, Proops, and McShane. <laughs> it was like it was like the 27 Yankees. And so anyway, it was he did a great job and he made it funny. He made fun of himself in the wonderful oh, Reed style. So I, I you know, the thing yeah. is when you have a musical improv form where you have to go in order, go early because the jokes are going to get used up. So you want to get in there quick and get the low-hanging fruit. With Fault Line, we did an improvised uh, mini Shakespeare play and an improvised Broadway-style musical every night. So we do Shakespeare in the first half for 15 minutes and then a musical in the second half for 15 minutes. So we were getting our reps in on those styles in front of a live audience, which was great. Great training. Yeah. Terrific. Now, by the uh, later 80s, I think 87 or so, um, you became involved in the building of Bay Area Theater Sports, BATS, which is an ongoing improv company that is for many years now has been at Fort Mason. It's one of the many groups around the nation that plays theater sports, which is an improv game based on uh, work by the longtime uh, improv coach Keith Johnstone. Wondered if you could fill us in on your work with Bats and with Keith and how you got to know him. Bats started because Fratelli Bologna, this great commedia troupe that turned into kind of a corporate comedy powerhouse as well as a extraordinary theatrical ensemble, was very interested in Keith's work and improvisation. William Hall, who was a member of Fratelli Bologna and, a, and another co-founder of Bats, and I were sitting in at our agents at the Brebner agency waiting to to audition for something. And we started talking about Impro, the book. And I think I pulled it out of my backpack and said, yeah, we're reading it. We're using it for fault line rehearsals. Cause that was the, that was the book that we worked out of for fault line. And I had been turned on to it by a teacher of mine named Joe Allo, cause he was teaching improv as part of his uh, curriculum. And William and I bonded over it. And then he knew Rebecca Stockley, who had been studying with Keith in Seattle at Seattle Theater Sports or Unexpected Productions. So he brought Rebecca down to do a workshop, a series of workshops. And Dan O'Connor was in that, and I was in it, and Fratelli Bologna was in it. Larry Pizzoni from Pickle Family Circus was in it. It was a really interesting mix of different people. And out of that work with Rebecca, people got really excited about it. We did a show. Joe Paulino played keyboards i think you know it was it was another one of those uh mickey and judy let's put up a show moments that uh, my san francisco memories are so filled with that it was such a beautiful part of growing up there and then everyone kind of looked around and said well do we want to do this do we want to start a theater sports league and yeah a number of us said yep let's go let's get started and we met in the mission district and figured out how to do it we got new performance gallery as a as a space that would have us on monday nights we started doing shows, which that's what you do. You want to do shows, you start doing shows and put them up and see if people will come to them. And we offered classes and it just started to grow little by little. So much opportunity for creativity to take over. You want to do a formal night where we're going to improvise a prom? Sure, let's do that. You want to do a sword and sorcery epic where everyone's in costume and you're improvising some sort of Conan the Barbarian style epic narrative? Sure, let's do that. Um, and musicals in the style of Elvis, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, Bats is still doing tons and tons of genre work. Bats is great, and it's ongoing. It's at the Bayfront Theater in San Francisco, and it's a a wonderful group. And um, over time, they've done some terrific things. 
I want to say that my first Keith Johnstone style workshop was in the spring of 87 and you and Drew Letchworth were teaching it. And we had in that class, Greg Proops, Barbara Scott, myself, Tracy Burns, Teresa Roberts, and a few other folks. I don't remember everyone. Having said that, it was a terrific class. We had so much fun with you and Drew. And I, I thought it was a revelation for me to learn some of the Johnstonian stuff most especially status work, status work. And um, I had never come into that uh, via the Viola Spolin method of stuff that I had learned so far. And I think it allowed me to, to also to work with that level of, of people, allowed me to learn enough so that, you know, you could, you could move to another level. And I think that was really fun. So that was, you've done a lot of coaching over the years. And, um, and that was one of the things you shared with me. So thank you, Brian. Keith's work on status is transformative because it's this thing that we're all doing all the time anyway, because we're hierarchical creatures. We we come from this, you know, mammalian pecking order DNA where we're looking around to see who's in charge, who's going to make what decisions, where do I fit in this order? And we're programmed to do it. And he just pulled the curtain from behind that and revealed what was going on. And as actors, you can always play status. Am I higher status in this moment than this character? It's always shifting, right? And then you start to look at the world in terms of status transactions. What's the best way for me to get seen by the barista right now? Should I play high status and puff my chest out? Keith would say, I just imagine you've got a silver star or a rotating star in front of your chest and, and let that lift your chest up and see if you don't get served earlier at the pub. Tips like that, which I think he borrowed from Michael Chekhov, but still so, so useful and fun to make games out of it. So people can play with what's happening sociologically in the world. Yeah, there are so many games that have come from that. I think of William Hall's game collection, but of course, Randy Dixon's done game collections. I'm sure you have, too. They are available for those who would like to know. And you can always check in with Snap Sessions. I will gladly turn you on to William Hall's book of games, et cetera. So anyway, you moved on then. And, uh, you know, this is Brian is a treasure chest of improv styles, et cetera. I think the next one that I think of in terms of your career was the Pulp Playhouse, which came about at the end of the 80s, as I recall. Pulp Playhouse was dedicated to making genre stories and to doing a as I recall, the first show I saw, it was like a series of short stories, one narrated by each of the characters. Those were showbiz stories. I very much enjoyed that. Uh, how about some background on Pulp Playhouse and how you headed in this direction? Yeah. So if you'll remember, Doug, you and I were on the Pros from Dover tour in 1988, traveling around Germany and the Netherlands and with a stint in England. One of the holiday specialty shows that we'd done with Faultline was a Halloween show that was inspired by Tales from the Crypt. So each of us was going to play a storyteller character that was going to be a creepy kind of crypt keeper or, or witch or ghoul or something like that. And that got me thinking, this is so good for improv because if one of the stories isn't good, you can just pretend it didn't happen and move on to the next story and the audience will forget about it if the last one is good. You know, they'll remember the last one. So it, it had that fail-safe device built in. And it also gave people a chance to tell stories as characters, which is different than 
the traditional typewriter scene that you might learn in theater sports where you're sitting at a typewriter and yeah. saying, one day uh, I woke up and realized that my neighbor had turned into a giant cockroach. Instead, you're going to play a character who's in a dramatic situation and, and has a need to tell a story. So I came back from the Pros from Dover tour. You said I could stay at your place in Albion. And uh, I created Pulp Playhouse in your living room, thinking about what are... What are the seminal genres? Okay, it's horror espionage for me at that point, having just been in Germany, was a, sem- a seminal genre. Cold, Cold War. Mike, yeah, mm-hmm. Cold War. Science fiction we did early on, I think, as well. And romance. So we had set a season up where we were going to do each one of those styles inspired by the, the writing in the pulp magazines of the 1930s and 40s, which were the forerunners of... Uh, the, the lurid paperbacks that had lots of crime and gory horror and exciting science fiction. Everything has an adjective in front of it in pulp. Amazing stories, astounding stories, spicy romance. And we started in 1988 at the Eureka Theater. Fantastic group of improvisers. I'm so fortunate to have gotten the cast I asked to do it right off the bat. It was uh, Mike McShane who co-produced with me. So we're still working together after Fault Line at that point, and he's off starting to do Who's Line at the beginning of doing Pulp Playhouse in London. So it's me, Mike, Reed Rollman, and Rafe Chase are the the four men. And then uh, Regina Saisi, Barbara Scott, Olan Jones, and Stephanie Hunt are the, are the four women. And I cast people who were primarily actors or thought of themselves as primarily stage actors and people who thought of themselves primarily as improvisers so that the acting would be really good and the improvising would be really good and we'd teach each other. It was a terrific show. There was so many different, you would go to one show and the next show would be completely different. I remember McShane did a, the first one, the showbiz stories, which was, might've been early on in the, in the um, uh, Pulp Playhouse uh, context was he did Kiefer's Peeper Bomb or something like that, which was a McShane did a fatty Arbuckle character named Peeper's Kiefer Bomb. And there was some wonderful stories. Uh, Regina did a character named Edith Neck, I think, uh, who was, <laughs> was also beautiful. They would do 10 minute sort of uh, vignette kind of stories, which I believe were narrated by the, the uh, lead character and the other players would play the parts. Was that, was that? Yeah, that's it. You get a title from the audience and you try to work that in to your monologue. Now you remember when I was first working in Hollywood, I, I, I had been uh, working on a, a picture. What was it called? And you, you know, it's kind of get it in there and that would be your story title and uh, launch and, and go. The audience would have a program where we would leave space for them to write down the titles from the show that they saw that night. So they could they could do the list as they went along, which I thought was a fun way to include them. We were the late show at the Eureka for a number of years. And this is when the Eureka Theater was doing the world premiere of Angels in America. So there was a lot of attention focused there from the theater world. And they were incredibly generous with us with their resources Again, feel very fortunate to be in San Francisco in that time where Oscar Eustace is saying, yeah, you guys, you come in, you be the late show, uh, work on whatever set is up there. So we did we did uh, science fiction in this weird Latin America hotel set. We did uh, uh, we did Irish stories for St. Patrick's Day. 
on the set of a play called The Stick Wife, which was had these strange lattice wooden walls that you would walk out behind it. It, it looked kind of like some sort of Irish shanty that might be built out on the bogs. Really fun to not know kind of what the challenges of working on a real set were going to be. And it helped me at that point realize that improvisation can really thrive when you give it the production values that regular theater has. That's an excellent point. And, uh, you know, it strikes me that that leads us to the next stage of, of your career in long form uh, improvisation. And that's when you moved to Los Angeles. And I think that was in 99 when you uh, started to work with L.A. Theater Sports and with Dan O'Connor specifically on bringing up a show called Shakespeare Unscripted. You mentioned that uh, you had worked with Faultline on doing a short 15-minute Shakespeare pieces back then, but this is about 12, 14 years later, and you st- we started to do, the, the idea was is that we rented the Globe Theater of, in L.A., which was in West Hollywood, and I was working as the producer then for a lats. And um, we then practiced for, I think, two and a half months weekly. We would have intensive Shakespeare improv practices and led by you, Dan, and you also got some other people involved. This was a very interesting production and I really value the time. Give us some background on this uh, Shakespeare unscripted show. So we've done Shakespeare as part of our Pros from Dover tour in 88. Doug, you know, we'd pull out and improvise Shakespeare as a, as a crowd pleaser and, and, a, and a fun way to tell a story using some heightened language and some poetry. I started teaching at ACT in San Francisco in the advanced training program in 1988 and taught there until 1995. And part of my curriculum there was working on improvising Shakespeare while the students were doing their rehearsed Shakespeare projects. The idea being that the language is really going to sound like yours if you can improvise it. You'll feel much more natural as you're performing the scripted work. And you start to meet Shakespeare kind of halfway with your own impulses and your own creativity. And then the tools which he gives you, the glorious tools of how he structures language and creates stories. So Dan and I were excited to do Shakespeare with a big cast in an actual theater. There'd been some small forays in different parts of LA. We did a thing called Bard in the Yard with Dave Bushnell and Floyd Van Buskirk, Adrian Corcoran, I think. And Tracy might have done some of those shows too, which were outdoor Shakespeare shows in a patio behind a coffee house. But the Globe was a scale model of the Globe Theater in London and it had a trap door and it had balconies and it was, you know, what maybe a quarter scale of what the actual Globe was. But Big enough to be impressive. And we had a cast of 18, I think, in the shows. We had a a large group. And of that is sometimes as many as 16 people would be on for a week. It was huge. (laughs) And uh, with the cast that big, there's always the chance that you don't get in. Right. You know, it's the stories going on. Well, how do I insinuate myself into this or what can I add to it? And there was one terrific ending to a show where the king had been talked about for the whole play. It's kind of like Robin Hood, right? Where Richard the Lionheart is going to come back at the end. And we all know it. We're just talking about him. So we've been talking about the king and Floyd had not been in the show and he'd been muttering to himself backstage like, oh, I don't know. And he goes around the back, comes in through the audience. There's a fanfare 
And all 15 people on stage drop to their knees as soon as Floyd shows up. So talk about status, right? Gigantic status lift for Floyd. Comes down as the king, solves the problems, heals the kingdom, makes the relationships right. It Just like Act 5 of so many Shakespeare plays. That was a really big uh, thing. And there was also times when you realize for the good of the many, this was kind of Spock, you, know, you must sacrifice yourself. I remember one evening, uh, my friend Richard Sakai, who a longtime childhood friend, and he's got, he had been in big productions in, uh, in L.A. He came to see me that night, and it was an evening where um, the second scene, you had been marked out as the bad guy initially. It looked like you were the bad guy. We were on a boat and I was in the back, uh, st- you know, kind of rowing the boat. And McShane and I and you were all in the boat together. And uh, at one point you turned around with a knife and you had to kill somebody. It couldn't be McShane because he was the other main character. I was standing there with my oar and I looked at your face and the knife came and I knew it was my knife. <laughs> and I- <laughs> and I saw there was this momentary glance where I saw in your eyes this simpatico feeling like, sorry, Doug, you got to go. And I fell off of the boat into the water. And I think to myself, Sakai's going to kill me. Yeah. So the end of On the Waterfront. <laughs> not my night. Not my night. I could have taken that from apart. You shouldn't have killed me, you Charlie. You're my brother. You shouldn't have killed me in the boat. It was just one of those things. And this is the, you know, improv. Sometimes you've got to be the guy who takes the knife. And I think that was a classic. But getting back to the production, it was a wonderful thing. We we worked on it. We actually were on stage at the Globe for about six months, Mm -hmm. as I recall. Mm -hmm. And it was it it was uh, lots of interesting people came. Lots of uh, kind of big shot uh, Hollywood improvisers showed up to watch the show. And I think they were massively envious that if they weren't in the production, you know, it was one of those. We did get some good guest stars. Yeah. Uh, Wayne Brady, I remember. Yeah. In a bunch. Yeah. I was one of Wayne's two sons uh, on one. uh, That was I was also uh, the low status son on that one. So anyway, there you go. Status work is very helpful. in these. Yeah. And I'm still doing Shakespeare online. I've had a group through Impro Theater that I've been doing online Zoom classes with and they're performing their final shows this Friday and Saturday. And I am wrapping up uh, a class of Pulp Playhouse as a lab class through Impro Theater. Uh, And we will have, we'll do our ninth show this Sunday and wrap up doing a run of adventure, crime, science fiction, and horror. So I'm still doing the work, right? Uh, All these years, all these years later. Well, this brings us to improv, impro theater. You and Dan had continued uh, you, with Shakespeare Unscripted, brought you into this land of unscripted uh, productions in the sense of being able to do genres. And um, around 2005 or so, you and Dan and various of, uh, of the other L.A. theater sports players pulled together and start doing a series of shows under the name Impro Theater. Jane Austen unscripted, Dickens unscripted, etc. Talk to us about the formation of Impro Theater, which you just mentioned you're coaching on, and give us some background on that. Well, it evolves pretty organically out of L.A. theater sports. So as we mentioned, Rebecca Stockley comes down from Seattle, uh, brings the golden tablets of Keith Johnstone to Bay Area theater sports. 
we are transformed and the tribe is now complete. Dan O'Connor, who is one of the co-founders of Bay Area Theater Sports, moves to Los Angeles. He does the Pros from Dover tour with UNI in 88 and runs into Jeff Weissman, who I knew from San Francisco State, at a pub in London. Jeff has come out to see some improv. They talk about forming a theater sports group or an improv group in L.A. Dan moves out of the Bay Area, is down in L.A. Forrest Brakeman, who was in Fault Line at the dorms at, at Mary Ward Hall and was Greg Proops' roommate and stand-up partner for years, is in L.A. Forrest joins that group. Ellen Idelson from San Francisco State, who was in a production of Cloud Nine with Jeff Weissman and me. So it all kind of incestuously ties together. They form L.A. Theater Sports and bring down Rafe Chase and Barbara Scott to pass the golden tablets of Keith down to them. And now LA has a terrific improv company that is booming. And Dan's the artistic director and they're doing tournaments where they bring people out from New Zealand and Australia. This is all happening kind of mid nineties. And then I moved from San Diego where I worked at the old globe on travels with my aunt and Cymbeline and did some composing for the Mask of Moriarty and taught in the MFA program there for a couple of years. When that wraps up, I moved to LA and start working more with Dan. It's still theater sports at this point. And then it starts to turn into something that's a uh, laboratory for longer full-length plays that are improvised in different literary styles. And part of the impetus for that is unexpected productions from Seattle. So again, back, back to the source and, you know, they get it from Canada. It kind of travels from Calgary West hits Vancouver and then heads South into Seattle, the, the great glorious comedy contagion of uh, theater sports. So we're, you know, doing our regular improv shows and then unexpected gets a gig at the Colorado Shakespeare festival to do their version of Shakespeare Unscripted, which I think it was unexpected Shakespeare with the NX and Ron Hippie and Randy Dixon are, are helping spearhead that show. And they need a couple of improvisers to fill out the team. And Lisa Fredrickson and I say, yes, please. We would love to see what it's like to improvise full length Shakespeare plays at a Shakespeare festival. What a unique opportunity that would be. So we go out to Boulder and um, do a season of full-length improvised Shakespeare plays on the set of Merchant of Venice, which has this gigantic, you know, two brass doors, which are going to open the, the, the ghetto of Venice open to the world and uh, chance for the merchant Antonio and Shylock to all meet and get together. Anyway, what a blast. And Lisa and I are having beers and going, God, this is, we should do this in LA. This was fun. So we come back after that and say, Dan, look, there's an audience. There's a theater audience for full-length improvised play. We played to subscribers and they loved it. They weren't like, oh, this is kind of an improv comedy thing. They, they were excited to see new stories told in the style of Shakespeare. So we make our pitch and we start getting some traction. Paul Rogan comes out from London. He's moved to LA and he and Dan have both had the idea to improvise Jane Austen and their own separate brains. They put their brains together and we start doing Jane Austen unscripted. I think the first one was Dickens unscripted at Antaeus, which is a classical theater company and had a, a great kind of comedy comedia strain within it. 
spearheaded by John Apicella, who totally got the improv thing and said, yeah, you guys come in here, do improvise Dickens and we'll do a, a comedy show. We'll do a, a double bill. And it grew and grew and grew. And, it, you know, to this day, we're still doing improvised styles as full length play. Tennessee Williams is another one. You've done L.A. Noir and Unscripted. You've done Twilight Zone Unscripted. Yeah, Twilight Zone Unscripted. It's the, it's the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and other authors as well, other playwrights, uh, you've taken them on. And I should say that basically these can, these are often two acts, right? I mean, you do a, a first act that's about 45 to 50, and then there's an intermission. You come back with maybe 30 to 40 in the second act. And they fill the style. The actors are all well-trained in accents and or dialects, etc. They're really wonderful. Adopted a model where we would tour Los Angeles because it's huge. So people from Pasadena are not going to come see you in Santa Monica. The drive is too long. But the show is very portable. So we built relationships with different theaters around Southern California been playing at North Coast Rep in Solana Beach down by San Diego for over 10 years. Pasadena Playhouse had us there for four to six years doing different styles in their their smaller upstairs theater, the Kerry Hamilton space. The Broad Stage in Santa Monica, which is a glorious state-of-the-art theater, had us in residency for a year where we did a different style every couple months or so and got to do a full season of these different unscripted improvised plays. The Wallace Annenberg Theater has had us. We performed uh, L.A. Noir Unscripted at the Ford Amphitheater, the, that huge outdoor space off Highway 101 at the Coanga Pass, which was I, kind of like the epic Shakespeare Unscripted show at the Globe, where it was a big cast. And Brian Jones had built little like uh, soapbox derby cars so we could have car chases on stage. <laughs> Yeah, very, very very fun. And always, whenever possible, as large an orchestra as we can get. So Peter Smith is a wonderful jazz musician who I met at the Old Globe when he was an MFA student. And we did some Johnny Lonely gigs together. Uh, Peter is great at scoring improvisationally, doing spontaneous scoring. And he had a trumpet player, drummer, bass player. We had a vibes player when we did it at the Wallace Annenberg and the Broad. Uh, So you get an improvised jazz score along with an improvised film noir on stage. What could be better? Yeah. Yeah. And I should mention, Impro Theater is still thriving. Uh, Through the pandemic, uh, they've managed to do a variety of shows and workshops. Brian mentioned uh, both his Shakespeare unscripted workshop and his Pulp Playhouse workshop. I recently uh, took a class with Paul Rogan on accents, which was wonderful for four weeks and that there's a lot of great classes. Lisa Fredrickson teaches there regularly, Dan O'Connor, there's a variety of people teaching. So improtheater.com. That's right. right. Yeah. So there's a lot going on there, but I know that uh, we could talk for the entire interview about improv, but I wanted to bring up another aspect of Brian's um, showbiz career, which is very impressive. And that is, He is a a composer and a singer and involved in a variety of musical styles. And um, when I first worked with Brian uh, in The Weasels, we had three different acts. Myself, I was in Burns and Nunn. We had Ray Hanna stand up. 
We also had Brian doing a, I guess you'd say pseudo nightclub act uh, by the name of Johnny Lonely. And uh, Johnny had a series of songs about sort of uh, a guy who never has any success in the world of love. And uh, the first song I remember was Welcome to Lonelyville. And uh, hopefully we'll have that playing in the background for this. Um, Tell us a little bit about Johnny Lonely and that particular style you were involved in as a composer. And then we'll talk a little bit more about some of your other musical work. Johnny got his premiere at Fault Line at Lips uh, in 1986, which was our, our last year there. And uh, I'd been having a rough time. My dad had passed away in 85 at the age of 63 because of a brain tumor. And that was not unexpected, but still uh, tragic and a big gap for me in my life. The woman I'd been living with uh, moved to Los Angeles and we were breaking up. Nobody does your laundry, nobody bakes your bread. And when you think you've made a date, no one shows up instead. Nobody listens to you, nobody cares what's on your mind. So try a game of solitaire, high hands, one of a So I was dealing, dealing with a lot of pain, a lot of personal pain. And thank God for comedy, because it gives you an avenue to make fun of that stuff. And I could look at myself in the mirror and go, OK, you can feel sorry for yourself or you can make everybody else feel sorry for you. I think that's the better way to go. <laughs> I'm an actor. Of course, I want the attention. Right. So I thought, well, I'll just mope around on stage and smoke a cigarette and look really depressed. And that'll be my lounge act. It was in, inspired by Frank Sinatra's God, why does Ava Gardner not love me period uh, where he recorded only the lonely and in the wee small hours of the morning and, you know, his own self pity train. And I thought, well, these are great songs. It's really, it's a wonderful genre to explore. So I wrote a song uh, called why'd you have to change your sex, which was the first, first one, which now as <laughs> as gender is is being explored in so many different ways, you know, that it's <laughs> definitely ahead of its time. And I had to rewrite yeah. the intro to it a little bit to make it seem like it wasn't a bad thing that the person had changed their sex. It's just that my character was trying to understand if they had done anything wrong to to make it happen. You know, is it my fault? Am I not enough for you? Is that is that why it's happened? And they're still together too. It doesn't end the relationship. It's just, I don't understand this transformation. So they still love each other. So I did that as part of the of the lip show and it went really well. So I thought, well, fault line's breaking up too. Another thing is ending. Why don't I do three full sets of Johnny Lonely at the Paradise Lounge South of Market with Joshua Raul Brody as my sunny, upbeat accompanist who has just gone through life spring and couldn't be happier. And totally the opposite of Joshua's stage persona, right, to do this. I said, well, here's the acting challenge, man. We yeah. can't have two sad people on stage. So you've got to be bubbly and perky, yeah. and I get to be sad and morose, okay? Which was really very, very fun to do. And we did a bunch of jazz standards, and I kept writing more original tunes for Johnny, including Lonelyville. Then I got asked to do a festival called the Prisoner in Your Own Home series at the Climate Theater on 9th, right across the street from Lips as part of that Soma theatrical renaissance that was happening 
in the, the fringe theaters of San Francisco. So I wrote a, a, a play for Johnny to do a short play, like a half an hour. And then that got some um, encouragement from people to keep going with it. So I wrote a longer version of it and performed it at the Life on the Water Theater, where Barrio Theater Sports is now. And then Shondell Sosna, who had been part of San Francisco State and then part of LA Theater Sports and was now in Seattle, said, let's do a run at the Velvet Elvis Arts Lounge and theater in Seattle. It's the perfect theater for your show. So Jack Fletcher, who was the master acting teacher at ACT, agreed to direct it, which was amazing because the, it would not have had any of the impact it had without Jack's direction. And we went up there and did a run and got really good reviews. And then I was able to do it in Australia at the Adelaide Festival and the Melbourne Comedy Festival. So it got to tour Johnny. And we did some Johnny Lonely on our Pros from Dover tour too. So um, yeah. Uh, and Lonely, of course, was for three weeks in Edinburgh, Scotland in 1987. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I will put it this way. Johnny Lonely has been lonely in a lot of places. He never, he never stops. Which is, <laughs> no, he's, he's always lonely. But, you know, there's been so much more music that you've written. I know that uh, we could squeak some other stuff in, but there is uh, the most recently. I don't know anybody who has written as many COVID related songs as you have. Brian has taken on COVID with a variety of styles. Here's a couple of songs that I know. Super Spreader, I Love You From a Distance and COVID Kid. I believe there's a fourth song. Fill us in on uh, this particular group of songs, your your COVID EP. Yeah, so I was getting very discouraged at the lack of mask compliance as the mask wars were starting to heat up around the country. And I was looking to humor as a way to maybe make people take a step back, calm down, have a conversation, have a laugh about it. And, and maybe there can be a, um, a, a little more agreement about it being for the public good to not breathe contagion at each other's faces and infect one another with COVID-19. So first one was the ballad of the COVID kid. And I reached out to a wonderful musical director down here, uh, John Ballinger, who had been my musical director for a, a jukebox musical called Mod Rock that I directed at the El Portal Theater, which was kind of a West Side story where the mods and the rockers in London in the 60s are, are at war, but very Romeo and Juliet West Side Story, you know, one from each clan loves the other and an opportunity to do great songs by the Kinks and the Animals and the Who. And John did a wonderful job with the band and we got on really well. And he also was my musical guy for the long running song improv workshop that I taught for Impro Theater on Sundays for about a year and a half. And I reached out to John and said, hey, do you want to do Ballad of the COVID Kid with me as a uh, country western murder ballad, kind of like Marty Robbins? In your face, loud and say, hey, in your face. The one-eared Jack Saloon in Deadwood was the first place COVID hit. Larry left a trail of bodies and a spittoon full of spit. He strong-armed the screaming school mom and plum kissed her on his way. There were funerals at the schoolhouse four weeks later to the day. Up in Moose Jaw, all the lawmen get their man. The iron on his hip, kind of a thing. 
Um, and John said, yeah, sure, let's check it out. So <laughs> we recorded that. It was really fun to do and kind of sent it around to some radio stations trying to get some airplay. And I'd had a Johnny Lonely song called I Love You at a Distance that I'd done in the act already and said, do you want to do a bossa nova and kind of a Burt Bacharach, Herb Alpert style, 60s style? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'd love to do that. So we did I Love You at a Distance. I love you at a distance, which I'm certain creates a strain. But your presence precedes a pain that is only matched when we're unattached. I feel so close at a distance. Instead of joining at the hip, let's be sure that you've your own zip so we can rendezvous after a mile or two. And I, I kept pestering him. He said, hey, John, those were fun. We got nothing else going on. Can I come to your house and record? I can see too much of your face. And he was like, oh, what's that? Well, it's a 70s Philly soul ballad like Hall and Oates or Gamble and Huff, the OJs, Blue Magic, that kind of a thing. Your face. Some say a mask is so sexy to wear. He's like, yeah, so let's work on that. So, you know, John can do full string arrangements, horn arrangements. He's playing all the instruments. It's like having a full production studio just show up in my inbox with rough tracks that I can practice to. We're sending stuff back and forth and collaborating. It's not making any difference at all. People are still continuing to argue about masks, but it is helping me psychically feel like I'm doing something and trying to make a contribution and put it out there. And then the last one we did for our EP, which is called I Was a Quarantine-Age Frankenstein. <laughs> the last one is called Super Spreader, and it's kind of a Aerosmith <laughs> rock anthem. Super spreader, spreading what I'm getting to you. Totally impassioned. <laughs> give it to you, give it to me, give it to everybody you see. Give it to her, give it to them. Open the door and do it again. Having a good time is all I want to do fun to be able to just kind of get some of my anxiety and frustration out through music and hopefully make some people laugh about it and go, hey, Uncle Uncle Morty, you should listen to this song. Uh, maybe you'll put your damn mask on when you come over for Thanksgiving. Now, we'll we'll hopefully have a little bit of, of, of each of these songs playing in the background here. We will also have links to these songs where you can go on Bandcamp. Um, Bandcamp. Bandcamp is where you can find these songs, the full length ones by uh, Brian Lohman and John Ballinger. They're terrific. And uh, it, it gives you some background, also some perspective on the whole stupid uh, COVID thing we've gone through. One of my regrets of 2020 was I had signed up to do the full week uh, impro theater course, uh, long form course with your workshops in the evening. So I was dedicating myself to, you know, 10 hour days there and I'm hoping that when um, this uh, you know fiasco is over, I'll be able to come down for a week and do all of that. So speaking of which, um, I want to talk also before we head away about um, 
your improv uh, music, your improv song classes. You know, I know for years, uh, Joshua and you started out doing improv uh, music workshops. I know Barbara Scott was involved too. You've done those. I've been part of some of those. And um, one of the most amazing things, as I said earlier about seeing uh, the Fault Line guys, uh, the first time I saw you improvise a song to get songs together was sort of a piano bar type thing. Talk to us about your your philosophy about getting people out of themselves in order to uh, musically improvise. Because to me, that is the funnest improv you can do. I love improv uh, across the board, but that is the one where you go off stage and you're like, hey, man, I actually improvised a song. Musical improv is exhilarating. You feel so lifted by the accompaniment when you're doing it. There's something that feels so so pure and expressive about putting your voice out there with a melody and some words. I believe we do it effortlessly as kids. Like when you're you're five or six, you can make up a song and spin around the living room and and you don't care. It just feels good to do it. And that's that's the source that I'm trying to reconnect people with when we're exploring how to improvise songs is get relaxed enough that you can let it show up. You don't need a bunch of clever lyrics. You can go boo bop ba da bop boo bop bop. I've always been a jazz head. Ever since high school, when I was playing in a rock band that suddenly turned into a jazz fusion band because our guitar player got the job as assistant sound man at Keystone Corner, which was one of the premier jazz clubs on the West Coast. And we all started hanging out in the sound booth with Jason and watching McCoy Tyner and Cannibal Adderley and Horace Silver, all these amazing jazz musicians and, and starting to play jazz as a group instead of Allman Brothers inspired rock and roll which is what we've done before. And jazz is an improvisational art form. So you know, what are these guys doing? How relaxed are they being? What is it that they're, they're tapping into? They're hearing things in their head and then they're singing it. So uh, you got to first get the panic out of your way and then listen to what wants to show up and then sing it. There's no pressure on you to create it. It's out there. I think Johnstone talks about the Native American philosophy or Native Alaskan philosophy or first peoples, that the sculptures in the stone. I think Michelangelo believed that too, that you're just getting stuff out of the way to get to what exists in the raw material. And that's how the totems are carved and uh, how Michelangelo approached some of his sculpture. And the same thing is true, I believe, when you're improvising. And yeah. to be able to take what I learned from singing and studying jazz formally at Lone Mountain College in San Francisco when I uh, was starting to work with a group called Acapella Gold, which was a vocal jazz sextet. And uh, I studied arranging and composing with Matt Crooks, who was our musical director initially. And that gave me some new language to use when I'm in a musical improv class where we can talk some about listening for harmony or song form. What's a chorus? What's a bridge? How do you intuitively just kind of hear how long a verse should be, because you kind of know. You, you go, oh yeah, yeah, that's the end. So I, I've I've delighted to kind of marry my passions with musical improvisation and also get to tip a toe into the world of jazz when I do it. Yeah. Well, I think it's one of the funnest things you can do, and they make that all. They always make that joke. The funnest thing you can do with your clothes on. And, um, <laughs> I think that musical improv is maybe that funnest thing you can do. With and it's so much on, better you know? with your clothes off, Doug. Let me tell you. <laughs> I can imagine songs you'll come up. Well, with. I'm sure you've done. You know, as many improv situations as you've been in, I'm sure you've done a lot. All the high notes you can hit. You never knew you had that range. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, you know, apropos uh, what you say about how to get your creativity out there, I think your life is an example of someone who has never stopped being creative. Uh, as much as anyone I know, Brian, you are uh, an extremely creative human being. And I think it, you have a life to, you've dabbled in all sorts of things, but you've also concentrated in areas that have given you expertise, which is really quite impressive. So I'm really happy we finally had a chance to talk to you on Snap Sessions, because like I said, you have put creativity into action for your entire life. So I'm impressed. I love it. Well, that. I sure love the show, Doug. It's been a great way to get to know people that I had heard about or people who I sort of knew. Like Michael Sullivan was my neighbor in San Francisco for a decade, but we hardly saw each other. We were both so busy doing different stuff. And then, you know, to to hear about the Cafe Beaujolais and Cat Mother and the All Night Newsboys, all stuff that, you know, I kind of knew about. So I really feel like Snap Sessions is a wonderful portal into uh, a vast world of creativity in Northern California and, and beyond. So I'm, I'm grateful for you guys taking the time to do it and very grateful that you included me. Thank you very much. Well, thanks, Brian Lohman. It's great to have you here. And please say hi to Kathleen and Django and Alistair. And I look forward to seeing you guys this winter. By the way, we should, if you are coming up in January, uh, we should be potentially be able to have you for a Shakespeare workshop. Within Ooh, one that would be great. Yes. <laughs> so thank you, Brian Lohman. Thanks to our artist of the show, Brian Lohman. Our production team includes Techmeister Marshall Brown, Jack of All Trades Ken Krause, writer interviewer Doug Nunn, and our logo designer Daniel Stieglitz. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes.